0: Welcome to the second podcast in this series between the British Institute of International and Comparative Law, BICL, and the Centre for Effective Dispute Resolution, CEDAR, Hosted by myself, Ben Thompson, from CEDA, this podcast will feature Helen Dodds, former Global Head of Legal Dispute Resolution at Standard Chartered Bank, now Director of Legal UK, and a member of Law Tech UK's Commercial Dispute Resolution Task Force. Lauren McGurl, Director of Commercial Disputes at CEDA, and former senior associate in Freshfield's London Dispute Resolution team. And Sir William Blair QC, former judge of London's Commercial Court, barrister, arbitrator, and CEDAR accredited mediator. This collaboration between Bickel and CEDAR is aimed at encouraging more effective and sustainable dispute resolution in the business and legal community, both within the context of the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. It draws heavily on Bickel's Breathing Space project and concept notes, And more information on this can be found in the podcast description. Lauren, Helen and Bill, uh, welcome to episode two of this Bickle and Cedar podcast series. I think we'll just start the discussion by um, drawing on some statistics from the Ministry of Justice, which suggests that there is currently an uptake in formal proceedings following a pandemic-induced downturn. And the latest reporting, which is, and we're recording this in January 2022, was from July to September 2021 and it suggests in this particular quarter compared with the previous there was um, an uptake of eight percent in terms of the damages claims and looking at this period compared with 2019 that was an increase of 337 um so the stats suggest there is um, an increase in core activity lauren is this something that you're you're seeing day to day at cedar yes
1: yeah, so i think we we are seeing an increase in we are seeing an increase in inquiries that are coming through both in relation to claims that are being litigated and also seeing an overall increase in claims that are pre-litigation so um, prior to any any claim being filed Uh, i think also anecdotally you know through talking to our contacts in the market and things like that we've seen an increase Um, and we know that lawyers in terms of what's being reported in the press are at unprecedented levels of utilization, um, as the, the Financial Times reports sort of on a, a weekly basis. Um, in terms of where that's going to go, I think there, the different people will have different views on that. Um, my view very much is, is we haven't seen sort of the, the top of the market in terms of what's been filed. Uh, there still is quite a bit of government assistance, which is out there at the moment. Um, for instance, bounce back loans and things don't begin repayment until June of this year. Uh, The government announced an additional financial package for the hospitality sector and those sectors that were affected by the additional restrictions, which came into place in December of 2021. So the music hasn't really stopped. And I think that businesses don't know yet if they're without a chair um, in the game of musical chairs. And so as a result, we are still seeing kind of the the ripple effect of the pandemic as it as it goes through. Um, And so it's important to kind of keep an eye on that as as the months continue on. Bill, is that something
0: that you're seeing as well, an increase in formal proceedings? Because you know, I mentioned court statistics, but it's also arbitration proceedings.
2: Yes, the, the uh, 2021
0: figures are not yet infamous, the big
2: arbitral ins- institutions. But as between 2019 and 2020, there was already quite a big increase. And I think um, anecdotally, uh, that increase has continued. Um, so where we are, is a, a situation where the number of disputes that have been litigated and arbitrated after a, a, a really quite pronounced dip when the pandemic started in March 2020 are now on a kind of um, upward um, uh, trajectory. I think, as, as as Lauren was was saying, though, it does depend partly on what type of dispute you're talking about. I mean, there, there are disputes around... Uh, commercial leases, for example, and household leases, where there is just an unanswered question as to how we're going to come out of the pandemic. But I think that what everybody does broadly agree about is that if you can conciliate a dispute, if you can prevent the dispute, particularly in getting it in the way of a, a recovery, then that's something that you should do.
0: Mm-hmm. And Helen, what are your thoughts on this this uptick that we're seeing after you know sort of a relatively quiet period? I suppose.
3: Um, yeah, it's an interesting indicator, and of course, this is this is figures for the UK. But of course, the UK is a huge international centre for dispute resolution of all sorts, but um, including the commercial court and um, leading arbitration institutions. Um, so it's a bit of a, a bellwether, I think, for the international. Situation, and obviously, it's where a lot of uh, big uh, international bodies and parties come to litigate their disputes. I think reasons for the delay uh, possibly might be um, rather as in the um, 2008 financial crisis, um, parties tend not to litigate immediately in the middle of a crisis. Uh, they wait for things to stabilise uh, before they get going on their lawsuits. They've had to sort of tie everything down in their businesses to make sure they stay afloat. Um, so that might be a reason why the uptick is happening now. As fingers crossed. We hope for some sort of stabilisation. Um, and another reason, which also applied in 2008, is that novel legal, legal issues get thrown up. Um, And in the case of this particular crisis, that might be issues of force majeure and frustration, uh, where those are not new concepts, but the way in which they're being construed and the context in which they're arising are new. So uh, for those reasons, I think there has been a pause, um, but that is no longer the case, and the uptick has certainly started. Mm
0: -hmm. And now looking at the reality of, of formal proceedings, what does the sort of day in court reality actually mean for people, Lauren?
1: I think what we see is that when relationships have broken down and parties become very positional, uh, essentially what happens is you will see parties retract retract into their arguments, and they will want to, in particular, claimants, but this also can can go for defendants, will want to be able to put forward their side of the story, um, and so in particular for those who are who are not as familiar with um, the way a civil claim works in, in England or who have not been to court themselves, um, they will say things like, I want to be able to tell my story, I want the judge to hear my story, I want my day in court. And what that in reality ends up being is it's it's not what is portrayed on television, which is an American style jury hearing, um, but rather it is a, a case before a judge, the witness will get up, they will verify their witness statement, uh, usually through a series of three to four questions. And then they're handed over to the other side's barrister, whose job it is, is to criticize and um, poke holes in their case. And it's an incredibly unpleasant experience. And it's one in which the witness has very little control um, because they're on the defense the entire time. So I think what, what is really important is that parties understand what it means to go to court, what it will mean personally for them and what it will mean for their business and what it will mean for their employees Um, in addition to kind of what we just talked about, about the actual experience of being in court, there is the sort of 12, depending on how big the case is, you know, it could be 12 to 48 months in terms of run up to a a trial. Um, and during that you will have your employees, if you're, if you're a company, they will be doing their day jobs and then they will also be doing a second job, which is litigating. In some instances that will be taking them completely out of their day jobs. You lose that resource. or you are putting that on top of their workload, which causes stress, uh, but also which causes a complete lack in productivity um, and a real hit there. So I think it's really important to think holistically about what is the impact of starting litigation and is there a way forward that can allow you to to solve the problem and seek a remedy much more quickly in a way in which the party has control. So through a facilitated negotiation, through bilateral negotiation, or through mediation, which can be um, invaluable, so that parties can get back to doing what it is that they do day to day, and therefore, you know, make money um, and do what they love instead of fighting a battle, which will cause them, uh, you know, emotional stress as well as financial hardship.
0: Mm-hmm. And Bill, a big element of um, formal proceedings, you know, litigation and going to court is uncertainty. And you made an interesting point when we were talking before the podcast about we're in a completely uncharted territory, um, you know, as a sort of global community, and and we're not, we haven't yet seen that uncertainty play out in in formal proceedings and, and court judgments and so forth. So thinking about businesses going or going down the route of formal proceedings, what are the things they need to be thinking about when it comes to that?
2: Well, I think the, the added uncertainty
0: in outcomes
2: is a, an important. And remember that in a global economy that's characterized by supply chains, goods may start in China, they, they may uh, go to another place for other things to be put in, maybe uh, India, then they go through the Suez Canal, and they go to somewhere in Europe, and something else is done with them, and then finally they're distributed through a whole uh, lot of um, ports. And the legal uncertainties that the pandemics caused can apply to any one of them. And so, yes, it is a um, a new uh, situation, both because of the pandemic and because of the changes in the global economy. I think just to pick up on a day in court, I think uh, if anyone looks forward to the day in court, then they're disappointed. Is is the truth. And if they're looking forward to the, the day in court, it's probably because they're getting obsessive about the dispute. And I, I've seen that quite a lot over the years in, in this country and when I've tried disputes in other countries and, and, and so on. And I think it's a great pity. With big corporates and um, big business generally, I don't think they really look at it to stay in court. I think they have a, a, a an appraisal of the claim they decide what they want to get out of the claim which is often monetized in some ways w- what would be an acceptable settlement and so really from business's point of view what matters is to try to give business as many opportunities down the dispute line to, s- to settle their dis- uh, dispute satisfactorily because um, as Lauren says leave aside for a moment the um, individuals of SMEs. But even for a, a big business, litigation can get um, very um, expensive, not just in terms of cost, but in terms of executive time and so forth.
0: Mm-hmm. And
3: Helen? Yes, well, of course, I'm going to sort of violently agree uh, <laughs> with, with Lauren and, and, and Bill, and to say that uh, much as we might enjoy uh, as I personally do having a, watching uh, Legally Blonde every now and then, going to court is, is not like that. Um, so cases in most jurisdictions, as Lauren said, te- often take a long time. They run into years to get to court. Hearings are often dry, verging, frankly, on the boring when they happen. And these days, as courts digitise and move hearings online, a trial in person is not guaranteed. Um, and given the international nature of many commercial transactions that Bill's just referred to, a trial could take place in a foreign country and a foreign language for more, one or more of the parties. It's an incredibly hard slog to get to a hearing, as Lauren has said, involving substantial amounts of management time that can be much better spent in running the business. And case preparation evidence could also involve surfacing sensitive issues that uh, management might actually prefer to keep confidential, which certainly if you go to court will not be the case. Costs can be literally, prohibitively high, meaning that you just can't afford them. Court fees are substantial. In some jurisdictions, they're based on a percentage of sums claimed. Um, And in some jurisdictions, such as England, there's a risk of bearing the costs of the other side if you lose. Um, In some jurisdictions, it's possible for claimants to insure against legal costs or have them funded. But this isn't the case everywhere, and it, it will take up more management time and complicate the case further. Um, and some decisions are not even final. I mean, in courts um, you uh, can appeal, and in some jurisdictions you literally have automatic rights of appeal in t- three for three levels. So um, you know the thing can drag on for a very long time. Um, so. Um, I think sometimes people have said to me in the past in relation to settlement as, a, as opposed to going to court, the law must take its course. Absolutely not. In a matter of a contractual dispute, you have the reins as a party to the dispute and you can decide what is happening.
0: Mm-hmm. And that point about you decide, you know, taking alternative approaches about, Lauren, bringing control back to the parties and not leaving it up to somebody else to decide, well, their fate or the outcome of their case, or the outcome of their business, the survival of their business.
1: It, it's true. And I think that the big thing is, too, as, as Helen points out about kind of, you know, the law taking its course is if you have a, a civil claim, what you are looking at essentially is is something through a legal test. Right. So you're, you're looking at certain elements that have to be met and it is a narrow lens. And often what we find is when, when you talk to parties, whether it's parties you're advising or, or what we have at CEDAR parties that you're mediating with is the dispute is so much broader than that. But also the solutions are so much broader than that. And that is the big key is being able as a party to say, "Okay, I'm not limited by what the remedy is that's available through the legal test, but rather I can come up with alternative solutions that will ensure that either, you know, I can I can continue on with my business for a longer period of time or, you know, in ideal situations, both parties can walk away with with what they want um, and it, it's not to say everyone's always a hundred percent happy, um, but it does mean that they they achieve their objective and they're able to move forward and able to continue to run their business, and that that is really key.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, no, I agree so. with uh, what uh, both both have said. I think the great majority of cases do, in fact, have a, a fairly clear set of parameters within within which the parties uh, are prepared to settle. Uh, and really, the the, the, the great uh, merit of the work you do at CEDA, for example, and other negotiated solutions and various other techniques, is that they try to, to draw these out and
0: draw them to the party's attention so that the dispute doesn't need to go any further. In terms of engaging in a different process other than, than going to court, for example, can, can people say, I want to engage in, in mediation or the negotiation at any point or is it typically that you know when you start proceedings that's it you're on a you know one one track to, to court or, or can you stop and say no I want to try something different can that happen at any stage
3: well I would say very very much so because actually um, I think in terms of negotiated or alternative solutions the timing can be almost as important as, as other factors um, and it may it may in, in fact be only when you get to a certain stage in an arbitration or litigation that um, you know the, the context and the landscape becomes clear the dust settles and you can see uh, what the parameters are so uh, it definitely has to be something that's on offer throughout a case um, and this is something where I think the courts and, and arbitrators can play a role in reminding people um, that they have that option of Somehow settling the case through um, a you know, particular kind of ADR or another.
0: Mm. And Lord Cedar, do we see people mediating at various stages in the life cycle of a dispute?
1: Yes, I think historically what we used to see is is you saw parties would wait until at the very least evidence closed before they would then seek mediation. And what we're seeing now is that is one we're seeing a, a big uptick in pre-action. Um, mediation, So parties haven't even filed a claim yet, but have done some research in order to, as Helen said, in order to see where, where has the dust settled, what, what, what is it that they, they are looking to achieve through the dispute, and what is it that they feel needs to be addressed. Um, but we're also seeing that mediations are happening um, before evidence has closed and, and before the courtroom doorsteps, which is is kind of what I think people previously used to see it as a as a tool for. And that really is because parties are measuring up essentially what is the cost of continuing with the litigation versus what am I able to settle, and not and not what they don't want to have is is a cost bill that will preclude them from settling. So where the cost suddenly becomes the counterweight that that really needs to be addressed and not the actual dispute itself. Mm-hmm. I was just going
3: to say, well, I think this is tr- true. And in fact, I've mediated a ca- uh, one case twice, uh, and first time not successfully, and the second time mm-hmm. successfully. And, and why was it successful the, the second time? And that was because the commercial context had changed, mm-hmm. uh, which meant that there was a zone of agreement which uh, hadn't existed before. Which brings mm-hmm. us back to the whole point about um, the real parties in, in disputes are the clients. Uh, they have their commercial drivers, and bring us back to this. You know, looking at it really uh, the resolution should come from those commercial drivers in commercial contract claims. Um, so I think that evidences uh, mm-hmm. this that Evidence is very much driven by the commercial needs of the parties.
0: And you said you, you mediated that case twice, and the yes. first time wasn't successful. And yes. some people say, well, uh, you know, although mediation has an incredibly high Success rate. You say, well, I don't want to mediate in case it, you know I don't settle. But in reality, even if your mediation doesn't settle on the day, it's still an incredibly useful process to engage with in terms of you know, trying to take the heat out of the situation, and you know, in terms of understanding your case better and the other side. So down the line, settlement becomes you know much more possible. Would that be something that you? Yes, and as? I
3: was to say no. No mediation is unsuccessful because you will certainly come out of it with some learning, even if you don't settle. But what it meant in in this case, was that um, there was a lot of ground that didn't need to be covered the second time around because it was taken as given, because it had been covered
2: in the first round. In terms of timing, uh, from the judge's perspective, there are really a number of times when the court may have the opportunity to encourage uh, mediation because, because every civil case, and certainly commercial cases will have a number of pre-trial hearings in front of the judge and for quite a long time now in the commercial court in London which is a very busy international court we have had a policy to encourage parties to mediate at what's called the um, the, the uh, case management conference but I think I think the whole process has been turbocharged recently. I, I guess this is something we're going to talk about uh, later. But the uh, policy from the, the very top of the courts now, particularly the head of civil justice, Sir Geoffrey Voss, has been to encourage the uh, settlement of disputes. And I think what you'll find increasingly is that at that case management stage, which happens relatively early in the action, the judges will be more proactive about exploring whether parties have considered uh, settlement and if there's anything that the court can do to uh, encourage it. I mean, I, I would say that this is quite an important point because... We're all in principle in favour of settling cases for all the reasons that have been given, the expense, the uncertainty, the time it takes and so forth. But nevertheless, we're all equally aware from our experience that things develop a momentum. And, uh, of course, it doesn't take very long in a commercial dispute now, whether you take it to court or arbitration, for the legal fees really to get very, very high indeed. Uh, I've seen some enormous um, uh, uh, cost uh, bills. We're certainly talking about millions, and for bigger cases, tens of millions. Now, that's quite a big item in in itself. I think, therefore, the the real uh, test of this will be whether the courts do become more proactive in trying to get parties to explore the settlement possibilities. Now, I, I uh, hope that will happen. I think we have an opportunity to make it happen.
0: And Laura, talking about traditional encouragement of mediation, there's a big debate going on at the moment about mandatory mediation. Is that something people need to be thinking about as, as something that might be on the horizon?
1: Yes. Well, I think that the Civil Justice Council um, published a, a paper uh, at the end of last year in which... Um, essentially they acknowledged that mandatory mediation was not against, uh, the ECHR and therefore it could be ordered. Um, and we know that, um, Sir Jeffrey Voss has very much been in, in favor of incorporating, um, non-litigious, uh, dispute resolution mechanisms. So not non, um, judgment driven, uh, such as ENE mediation, um, uh, facilitation, um, all of that within, within the life cycle of a dispute. Um, so we do see that mandatory mediation. I think that the door has been opened. Um, it's a little unclear at this point in time to see how it will develop. Um, but we do know that, and we were talking about this actually right before we we started recording this, which was where we thought the focus might be on mandatory mediation. And and the idea is that it will be on the the lower value claims um, in particular in an an effort to be able to ensure that those claims are resolved in a cost-effective manner. Um, But then there's questions as to how does it play into into the bigger claims and, and what is a big claim? Is it in excess of Ten million, which is what the you know the the um, cost budgeting requirements are, is it somewhere below that line? How does that that work? Um, I agree with Bill, though. There is a real opportunity here for judges at um, not just at the CMC or at the interim directions hearings, which take place, but also at the PTR. Um, what have you done, parties? You're here. You're before me. You're saying you're ready for trial. What did you do before you got here today um, to try and settle this? And it's a it's a really fine balancing act because the courts can ask whether a discussion has taken place or whether it has been considered, but then there's a bail and you can't go beyond uh, behind that as to what those discussions are. And it's really important that that bail I think stays there in order to preserve the integrity of the, the process so that parties are able to have in a WP context with you know no fear that this that the discussions will be brought into the litigation they can have a really full and frank discussion about settlement. Resources. Yeah,
0: how does some use yeah. mediation? Is that something that's has well, of value to you? Or?
1: I was thinking this
3: chimes with the Bickle guidelines in, in note 3, which uh, encourages people or parties who are talking about uh, contractual issues that they want to resolve to put their cards on the table as much as they can. And people are obviously, for a number of good reasons, often rather reluctant to do that so creating a sort of slightly formal negotiating space where you can be frank and say um you know i i can't do this my you know i'm not being paid down the chain or not being supplied down the chain or being sort of quite frank about uh, possibly what you might see as weaknesses um, means that you can do that to safe in the knowledge that you're not going to be disadvantaged further along the lines and this is something that the guidelines uh, recommend
0: yeah and building on, on, on that looking at the beel guidelines is there any other advice in there in terms of how to support contractual relations that you think is is worth talking about well i think the, the you know, one of the great things
2: about the, the guidelines is that they're written not just from the perspective of lawyers, but from the perspective of clients, try and get behind the lawyers. I, I, that's, by the way, not in any way criticism of the, the lawyers. It's simply that in in the end of the day, uh, the client uh, the clients are the decision makers. So I, I think it's one of the unique features of these guidelines is that they do look at the uh, the, the case from the perspective of the client and the litigant and the, their their brief. So it doesn't actually take the and uh, anyone very long to to read them. So I'm I'm, I'm very uh, su- supportive of them, and I think they're very sensible. Uh, just um, one uh, other point, if I may, uh, in arbitration, um, my experience is that although Medarb has been talked about for a very long time, it, it's quite unusual in commercial arbitration for um, Arbitrators to get into questions of settlement or raise questions of settlement. I don't think that's because uh, of h- any desire to um, d- do anything other than assist parties to settle. But I, it probably goes back to this idea of party autonomy—that the parties own the arbitration, and it's not really for the arbitrators to to. Um, Certainly not to tell them to uh, to settle, but I, I think that if the courts do manage to change the culture, as I as I hope they will, then that same cultural change can shift into arbitration. But the the, the one caveat that I'd make is that these points have been around for quite a long time; they're not really new. And so, you know, we're, we're looking for something, I think, to, uh, to propel um, a, a, a culture that we all feel is, is sensible. In other words, and negotiate solutions rather, rather than solutions through long and expensive and damaging uh, proceedings. Now, the, the pandemic may be, may be something that pushes things over into that kind of uh, culture. But also, I think leadership from the uh, senior judiciary could as well. Mm-hmm.
3: But I think you don't. I think that's so right, Bill. But you don't need. You, you don't need to, to. If you're managing this in in some ways intelligently, you should be thinking about it before you even get near the judiciary. Really, I think. Um, and the message of the breathing space, the first uh, note, is uh, about wanting to avoid an outcome, which I know you were one of the authors of, Bill. Uh, wanting to avoid an outcome that leaves one party a winner and the other a loser, and avoiding an outcome that doesn't take account of market or social contextualisation. And looking at this, uh, in some ways, ways putting responsibility onto the parties themselves before they even, uh, and perhaps their lawyers, before they even uh, get near um, a court or an arbitral tribunal um the uk government uh, uh, alongside many other governments around the world brought out some guidelines uh, in relation to covid uh, apart from actual laws one was their guidance on responsible contractual behavior in the performance and enforcement of contracts in 2020 and that gives some helpful thoughts on how parties could proceed advising them to act responsibly and fairly and protect jobs and the the economy Um, and the answer for the parties um, opt will lie often in the contract itself. That's probably the first place to look, not for what clauses are being broken, but what to do about the situation when clauses are broken. Um, and contracts, particularly those governing uh, long-term commercial relationships, often contain such clauses. And just picking up one
0: of the points that you mentioned a few times there, Helen, which is about the long-term commercial relationship. And Lauren, is there a danger that a dispute about potentially one part of the contract spills into a sort of general loss of trust amongst the parties, which impacts, like Helen mentioned, the longer-term relationship. So is that where something like early neutral evaluation, mediation, facilitated negotiation can kind of intercept an issue, manage it, resolve it before it, you know, becomes a sort of a wider issue for the parties to deal with?
1: I I think that's right. I think you know, disputes have a, a habit of spiraling um, to and, and, and therefore damaging um, all aspects of the, the relationship. It's not to say that the sophisticated parties are not able to rise above it. They absolutely are. And we see this happen all the time. Um, but it, it can impact the overall uh, workings between the parties and it will have an impact on productivity. It will have an impact even in the best cases. Um, and And in the worst case, it results in a complete, breakdown in in communication between the parties, which can see, serve as a real log jam. I think one of the things that's really helpful with the, the Bickle guidelines is that coming back to kind of what Helen just, just touched on is no matter what the contract provides in terms of how you resolve these disputes, uh, these guidelines can sit alongside that. And what they really provide is you read through them and you think, yeah, this this all sounds really sensible. And this is exactly how people should be resolving disputes, but it's not. Um, and what they help to do is, is put on a piece of paper, um, essentially a really pragmatic approach and a really effective approach, which allows the parties to say, okay, we are going to abide by this. And then we're going to hold each other to it. And we can say, you know, hey, you're you're starting to venture into, into the realm of being unreasonable. Can we just come back to these guidelines and, and make sure that we're conducting our negotiations or conducting our our litigation, or whatever it is that you're you're doing to resolve the dispute, in a way that is is fair and transparent um, to the parties, and that if you can do that, that will preserve the relationship ultimately. Um, because everyone knows when you're involved in litigation, you're going to get beat up a little bit. Um, but what you want to do is is have it done in kind of a, a fair and transparent way, such that people don't feel like they're being you know, taking advantage of, or, or as Helen said, treat it unfairly. So, so, the contracts being really used to, to really squeeze the other side, because mm-hmm. that's not going to result in a in an overall benefit for the industry, but it's also not going to result in a benefit for the two parties to the contract.
2: And Bill, do you have any
0: other thoughts on the, the guidelines and how they can help parties preserve their contractual relationships?
2: Yes, because this is one of the things that the guidelines address, and. Uh, It's quite interesting the way they do it because they take actually quite a practical view, and that is that they encourage parties to work together to make the proceedings go in an efficient and time appropriate manner. And that's the the kind of thing I think that would appeal to business people because uh, obviously they they, uh, think they or hope they've got a good case. Or I mean, people very rarely I think go into Litigation thinking they have got a completely hopeless case. We'll Going to arbitration, they, they do sometimes, by the way. <laughs> um, but uh, normally, people will will uh, be, be be looking at the uh, the, the positives as uh, um, they see them. I think Ben, you've said in a different context that one of the keys to um, uh, dispute resolution is is seeing yourself as others see you quote uh, quoted uh, Robbie burns in, in, in that regard uh, and it, it's a it's a it's a good point you see that the difficulty is and we, we we all know this that once you get through the court door or the uh, into the arbitration room it gets you know quite difficult witnesses are uh, heavily cross-examined they may end up being heavily criticized and uh, in circumstances where in in so many disputes, uh, um, really it's not necessary to get to that stage. I mean, there's just one other thing that I I would say, and that is that actually if you look at the statistics, the great majority of disputes are settled. I mean, in the commercial court, for example, uh, I I, I haven't got a precise statistic now, but, but suppose there are a thousand Uh, claims brought a year of these only about 30 will get to full trial but but, even so the the earlier stages of the dispute may be A very expensive and they are quite capable also of generating a a lot of uh, friction and um, uh, 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 unpleasantness and it's really that that makes uh, trust so difficult to get back but on the other hand if you can bring parties together, uh, and they 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 do do that most difficult thing of trying to uh, see themselves through other other eyes—that that is the eyes of their, their opponent—and they do reach a settlement, you know that can be a, a, a real plus. And obviously, if they've got
0: a, a, an ongoing business relationship, it's going to help. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. To sort of now, now wrap things up, Lauren, uh, do you have any final thoughts about you know what we've discussed
1: today? I, I mean, to me, really, the 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 takeaway is if you are if you are in a contractual dispute, whether you're an individual or you're an SME or you are a, a large institutional corporate, um, it's important to to take stock. Uh, to, as Helen said, let the dust settle. Take stock of where you are. Um, Read the Bickle guidelines to remind yourself of what is the, the reasonable and sensible approach to, to resolving a dispute, and, and try to get your counterpart to, to do the same. Um, and before you hit the, the litigation button, um, essentially try to explore what your options are with the other side in a, in a transparent way in order to reach a commercial settlement. You will be Your pocket will be definitely fatter as a result of it, but, but most importantly, your business will thrive. Um, as a result of it, because you will not have the added stress that that litigation puts on
0: it. Bill, your final thoughts?
2: So, I mean, my big takeaway is that there is a change of climate in the senior judiciary, at the very top of the judiciary, and I think that's important, because it should give businesses the confidence to enter into settlements, even if they had doubts about uh, whether it was the right thing to do, the the, the, cli- the climate is changing. I hope it continues to
0: change. And how last, but by no means least? <laughs> um,
3: uh, well, my thoughts are that um, if you sit down and try to resolve the dispute before it goes to court, you're um, you're maintaining control. Um, if you go to court, you will inevitably be handing control of your dispute to uh, your lawyers, the other side's lawyers, and the courts and the tribunals. Um, And in some cases that may be necessary, but in many, very many um, contractual dispute uh, cases, um, the parties can keep the control and resolve their own disputes by um, thinking things through in quite a simple way, uh, which I think are, I hope, are set out in the Bickle Guidelines
0: Um, and uh, owning the dispute themselves. Fantastic. Helen, Bill, Lauren, thank you very much for your time and you may have picked up on the the podcast mic the uh, St Paul's Bells which is always a nice uh, point to conclude on but um, thank you very much for your time today and we discussed throughout the podcast the biblical guidelines and to access them they'll be available in the description of the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank
2: you.
3: Thank you. Thank you.